Hello everyone, happy St. Patrick's Day. Today I am very excited to have my friend Nate Joseph from Pedagogy Non Grata join me. And today we are going to be discussing how the recommendations from the Ontario Human Rights Commission's Right to Read Public Inquiry uh, affect you know, the current curriculum. And a lot of it is looking at the balanced literacy curriculum that we're seeing in the majority, vast majority of the schools and the um, teaching strategies used and the recommendations from the uh, Right to Read inquiry are saying that we need to shift more towards a structured literacy approach. Now on pedagogy non grata, Nate talks about a lot of the different meta-analyses and looking at the research with a critical eye. So that's why I invited him on today. So we can take a little bit of a deeper look at what's going on with the research and what it tells us about best practices for teaching reading. If you do have any questions, please do pop them in the Q&A section of uh, the Zoom meeting or on the uh, Facebook stream, and we will try to address them when appropriate. All right. So, welcome. So, <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Yeah. So this is cool. It's my first time doing this with you. Um, although you've been on my, pad my podcast quite a few times, actually. Um, so I'm Nate, I am uh, the co-founder of Pedagogy Non Grata, and I'm also the author of The Scientific Principles of Teaching. Um, I tend to focus a lot on looking at things through meta-analysis, and today, what I really wanna look at is explaining to teachers um, and interested parties what the scientific literature teaches us about structural literacy versus balanced literacy, so that when you have that conversation with that person who says, well, how do you know that's true? That you can be like, well, this is the evidence and I'm gonna cite it back to you. Um, and yeah. you're a teacher yourself. Yes, I sorry, I forgot about that. That's weird. <laughs> I'm a teacher of 10 years. I'm a grade eight teacher right now. Um, very passionate about teaching. So uh, I want to start off just by defining what structured literacy is um, and, and defining what balanced literacy is. So as I see it, structured literacy is literacy instruction that is carefully scaffolded, um, starting with foundational knowledge for reading, such as phonemic awareness and phonics instruction. Structured literacy is explicit and systematic. Um, and it's based on the idea that students need to first need to learn how to decode words. And I think the really important parts to take away from that is it's explicit, it's systematic, and includes the instruction of sounds. Um, balanced literacy was a pedagogical movement that attempted to bridge the gap between uh, phonics instruction and whole language instruction. It's based on the idea that students learn to read implicitly, not explicitly, um, and naturally through exposure. Uh, students are getting leveled readers and act just asked to practice reading. Students are given phonics instruction only when they struggle with a word. So for example, rather than having a teacher tell you, um, this is what the pH sound is, uh, if a student gets to a word like phone and they're like, I don't know how to read it, the teacher might be like, the pH says, uh, that makes the fuh sound. Um, students are also taught to use the three cueing method, which when confronted with an unfamiliar word, they are told to look at the picture, to look at the sentence, or to look at the first letter of the word to try and guess. Um, and this is one of the major um, differences. Uh, from a linguistic perspective, which I won't spend much time focusing on, but I think a lot of people understand the linguistic side of why that's wrong. 
Um, because a realistically balanced literacy is based on two ideas. One, that students learn through osmosis. And two, that students um, should sort of learn by guessing words um, and learning over time. Uh, whereas through a systematic approach or a structural literacy approach or a science of reading approach, we wanna actually teach our students how to read, uh, starting with the basic sounds um, that make up words. Do you want to address anything I just said there, uh, Dr. Garforth? I just wanted to mention that when we look at the brain imaging, I don't believe this is stuff that you're discussing in the present. I think I could touch on it towards the end, but not much. But reading is not a natural process. We do not have hardwired or pre-wired areas of our brain for reading. So when using this balanced literacy approach, we are not helping the students that struggle to make the connection yeah, between the regions of their brain that they need to use to become a fluent, skilled reader. Yeah. So most of what we've just talked about is what I would call mechanistic evidence. So this is, this is basically the type of evidence that says what should happen. But it doesn't necessarily talk about what does happen when we study it um, through scientific research. Um, so I want to talk about, um, oh, I guess I got ahead of myself. Here, I'll, I'll give a couple more examples of balanced literacy. So not to go off uh, the topic of my, my presentation. So balanced literacy, an example in a balanced literacy classroom, you might have word walls. I think this is a really common one um, where you have words based on specific letters like apple for A, uh, bear for B, cat for C. Whereas a phonics uh, classroom might have a sound wall where we have words that start with an SH, words that include the A sound, words that include the J sound. Um, and, and what this really is, it's, it's this, about the sophistication of the letters because just knowing it's, we can call this sort of a, a very, very basic example of analytic phonics where students are really only taught the first letter of a word. Um, but there's, there's letters in the word that are not the first letter. So it's sort of over, overly simplistic and it's not instructional enough uh, to only base our, our phonetic instruction based off the, the first letter of a word. Uh, I think it's fine to be like, you sing the alphabet with kids and be like, A is for Apple, um, but we have to really take it a step further than that. And I think that's one of the big differences between balanced literacy and phonics. Well, and um, so just back up. When we do see those word walls in the balanced literacy classroom or in, in classrooms that do contain word walls, we are seeing words that contain the letter and not the phoneme or the mm. sound. So you could have under the letter C, cookie and scent. And while it's important for students to recognize that a grapheme or a letter can represent more than one phoneme or sound, it can be confusing to the young student and when we have the sound walls, they can see it. Or sorry, they can't see it. They can hear the likeness. And we want to draw attention to the similarity of the sounds. So uh, the main thing, I think this is the part of balanced literacy actually that often gets the most flack. And that is the, the three queuing system. And this is a, an example of one version of three queuing here. Does it look like it makes sense? Does it sound right? Does it make look, does it look right? The one I, I referred to earlier was, um, what does the picture suggest the word is? What does the first letter of the word, if we read the sentence, can we guess what the word is? 
But realistically, with systematic instruction, we're trying to get students away from guessing what the word is, and we're trying to actually have teach them how to read what the word is. Um, uh, and I think that's one of the key distinctions between balanced literacy and, and phonics instruction. Um, so I, I want to talk about, I'm going to skip ahead here real quick. Um, how do we know what we know in science? Um, because there are uh, a lot of studies out there on phonics, and some of them actually show uh, phonics not working, and some of them don't, or and show phonics working really well. And this, this is why you can't look at an individual study. And I think this is something the media really gets wrong about science. It's like my number one pet peeve on pedagogy on grata. It's just this idea that like, and, and the news does this all the time, where like they report on each individual study as if it changes the scientific consensus. You'll hear a study came out saying eggs are bad. And then the next week, a study comes out saying the eggs are good. And then people are like, I don't know what to believe. Um, and the reason people don't know what to believe is this is the wrong way to interpret science. Science doesn't work that way. We don't look at each new study as if it proves everything. We look at all the studies and we look at what does the, what do the majority of these studies point to? It's kind of like if uh, somebody came in a room and did a crime and we had 50 witnesses and three people said it was one person and 47 said it was the other, we're going to generally speaking, go with the 47. And, and that's how we've interpreted the science. And there with uh, research, we have something called meta-analysis. And that's where we look at all the studies on a topic and um, we see what do the majority of the studies show. Uh, and there's been a ton of meta-analyses on this topic and they all essentially for one outlier show the same thing. Um, so uh, when we look at meta-analyses, they generally speaking break things down into a statistical measure called an effect size. And I don't wanna spend too long on this because I don't wanna lose people, but I just want people to understand what this means because I'm gonna be talking about it a lot as we go through. So basically I have the chart up front. Anything below 0.2 is considered negligible. It means there's no effect proven. Uh, most studies show around 0.40. So anything that's a 0.40 higher is an average impact. And anything above 0.79 is considered strong. Anything above you know, one is really strong evidence basically. Um, I kind of like to think of it, it's almost like percentages, but not quite. Um, and the way we get effect sizes is really simple. They just take the result of the study and they divide it by the randomness found in the study using statistical measures. And that's supposed to correct for um, both the impact and the variability. Because if one person has a really incredibly high result, it could throw off the average of a whole study and taking just the average uh, can be useless because of that. So that's why we look at both, we use effect sizes and it's just a metric to standardize results across large numbers of studies. Okay, so that being said, I've got uh, about five meta-analyses here that I wanna talk about today. Um, so the first one was by the NRP. They were the National Reading Panel, and this was founded in the early 2000s to look at just this issue of structured literacy versus whole word language instruction versus balanced literacy instruction. Um, dyslexia advocates have been promoting a phonics-based instruction system specifically for a really long time, but we didn't have a, sort of a synthesis of the research to prove that they were right. And I think, until we have a large scale evidence, what we're really talking about is the difference between a hypothesis and a sort of a, a scientific fact within the community. Um, and the NRP is what really took phonics being the, the preferred method of instruction from a hypothesis to a fact. Um, so it was commissioned in the early 2000s and it's to this day, to the best of my knowledge, it's the largest meta-analysis ever done on reading instruction. It's like 400 pages. Um, if anyone's a huge nerd, it's awesome. You should read it. Um, yeah, so let's, let's take a look at the results. 
So this is the results. They first, they looked at um, programs. So very right off the top here, we see um, the, the highest program is Jolly Phonics um, with an effect size of 0.73. So that's a fairly high program size. And right here at the bottom, oh, uh, we see the effect size of 0 0.05 being the average for whole language programs. So uh, whereas all the programs in the middle are, um, are phonics programs, the green ones are just benchmarks. But you can see here, average phonics study had an effect size of 0.47 and the average whole language program had an effect size of 0 0.05. Below 0 0.20 is considered statistically insignificant. Now, this, some critics have said that this is not a direct comparison because all the studies aren't necessarily using whole language as their control group. But when we see no benefit, essentially, a statistical benefit to using a whole language program, and we see a benefit that's quite high for using a phonics program, it becomes quite clear. And I, I think it's really important to point out that one of the things that the NRP meta-analysis showed us is that phonics works really well in a specific area. So these studies here are looking at all phonics studies done at really at this point. So it's not even a good measure to look at this average here of 0.47 because they're looking at grades um, pre-K all the way to, to grade seven. Um, and one of the things that this study showed us was that phonics works best from pre-K to grade two and for at-risk readers. Um, so a lot of these studies here, we're, we're having the lower effect sizes that are phonics. The reason they're having lower effect sizes is because they're on older students or they're on specifically students with dyslexia and students, studies on students with dyslexia typically show lower results. So you can't really compare it to the rest of the research in itself. You have to sort of look at it in its own vacuum. So overall, what we really see right off the top here in the NRP meta-analysis is this huge difference between phonics programs versus whole language programs. And as I'm gonna talk about throughout this live, this is something that's been consistently found over and over and over again by meta-analysis after meta-analysis. There are people out there who claim there's no evidence phonics works. I don't know what they're reading because it's a really clear trend. It's super obvious. Okay, um, so the main benefit we see is from this is that phonics is better than whole language instruction. So uh, let's look at the grade one uh, let's look at some of the specific outcomes. So like grade one, we see 0.74, we see 0.58 uh, in kindergarten, 0.56 in kindergarten, or for at-risk kindergarten, 0.56 for kindergarten, 0.54 for grade one. Um, and then uh, we see smaller ones for, but still statistically relevant for reading disabled students of 0.32. Grade two to six is quite low. Um, but, you know, uh, one thing to point out, even the lowest metrics here are still higher than the whole language group overall. So there's really no evidence whatsoever, in my opinion, that you should realistically be using a whole language approach. Um, even in the grade two to six range, low achievers, which is our lowest um, metric, we still outperform whole language instruction by a, a threefold amount. Um, so uh, Linnea uh, conducted a Metatiles in 2001, which compared basal reading and whole language instruction programs to the instructions of phonics. Um, and I think the one I really want to point out is the direct instruction one, because there's actually a lot of different um, phonics programs out there. But one of the things that the literature clearly shows over and over again is that we want phonics instruction to be systematic and explicit. Um, so where we look at explicit instruction, we see a much higher result um, than the average. So we got that 0.85. So explicit instruction is double 
for phonics than just phonics overall. Um, whereas we have whole language and whole word instruction coming in much lower here. So uh, John Hattie is um, uh, a scholar who does secondary meta-analysis. So what he does is he looks at all the meta-analyses done on a topic and he um, takes an average of those to show us what does the totality of the research done so far show. And this one here, he found an effect as a 0 0.70 for phonics and an effect as a 0 0.06 for a whole language instruction. Um, and I will say that this is excluding, this is a slightly older version. So this is 2018, the 2022 one includes two outlier studies, which showed a lower um, uh, result for phonics, but those outlier studies we're looking at direct comparisons and direct comparisons tend to show lower results. So it's not really the same thing. So I believe the, the current one is 0.57 that John Hattie has for phonics instruction, but he still has whole language at like 0 0.06. And realistically, it's just those two outlier studies that have lowered that uh, effect size. But overall, again, we still, over the totality of the research, we see over and over again, the same trend where phonics outperforms whole language. Um, so Graham, that, and I want to get into a more balanced literacy because that's how we know that phonics works better than just giving kids, um, leveled reading instruction without any phonics whatsoever. Now, balanced literacy, people tried to claim that, well, we could give some phonics, but still get the benefit of whole language, which of course they claim is that it's, uh, uh less work for the teacher and that it is more fun for the student. Although I would advocate that knowing how to read is more fun than not knowing how to read. Uh, I don't know if it really makes sense to look at this through the what's the more fun way when we sh we have clear research showing that uh, some students can't learn how to read if we don't give them phonics instruction. So it's, it's really not a, a good idea to look at that way, but let's start to dive into the balanced literacy instruction specifically. Um, so overall, Graham et al. did a 2017 analysis, meta-analysis on um, balanced literacy programs. And he found an effect as a 0.33, um, which when we compare it to John Hattie's for phonics of 0 0.70, it's obvious still that phonics is still outperforming both balanced literacy and whole language. Although I would point out that the balanced literacy um, programs outperform the whole language ones, which when we see that, okay, because balanced literacy is basically some phonics, but very little, outperforms no phonics, and lots of phonics outperforms a little bit of phonics, we, again, we see we're really we're seeing a trend where the more explicit our instruction is, where the more our instruction teaches students the sounds of letters, the better they do. Um, so I did my I'm working on my own meta analysis on this topic right now. It's not completed, um, but I've looked at the following programs, and again, I think we see a pretty specific trend. So at the top, similar to the NRP, I found the highest effect size for Jolly Phonics, uh, and I actually found the lowest effect size for Words Their Way. Um, one point on that is that Words Their Way is not an explicit phonics program. It's not a synthetic phonics program, and it's not a systematic phonics program, which the NRP analysis showed us that we want systematic, synthetic, um, and explicit, which Words Their Way is none of. So Words Their Way is a phonics program, but it's not a structured literacy program. Um, and it's the only one of the phonics programs on this list that I would say is not a structured literacy program. So we see... Uh, overall, a mean effect size of 0.45 for structured literacy. And overall, for phonics, we see 0.43. 
And all the way here at the bottom, we see an effect size of 0.24 for balanced literacy. So again, we see twice the effect sizes found for phonics as we do for balanced literacy. Now, there's some confounding factors in this I want to point out. One, um, a couple of the programs here are specifically for dyslexic students, which tend to show lower effect sizes. So Orton-Gillingham um, and Wilson and Take Flight are all for only for students who had diagnoses of dyslexia. So those are going to show lower results. That's why you see them towards the bottom. And you see, um, where is it? I'm trying to find it here. Um, LLI here in the middle which is a balanced literacy program. It's sort of the most infamous of the balanced literacy programs because it's the most, um, it's the most used program in the world. We still see it showing a less than average effect size. It's very close to that 0.33 we found for um, a gram et al in 2017. Uh, but there's problems with the LLI research, which I'm gonna dive into as to why we have to take that research with a grain of salt and take it less as less credible. And the same thing goes for um, reading recovery. So this effect size of 0.24 I have for balanced literacy, I'm gonna throw this out there. It's probably actually lower than what it appears. Um, so let's, let's go through reading recovery real quick. First off, one of the problems with reading recovery is they automatically exclude the worst students. So any students that show like the lowest reading levels, they, they automatically exclude them from their studies. But we know that students with the lowest reading levels typically actually make the least progress in intervention studies. So right off the hop, they're inflating their numbers right there. Now, this is a meta-analysis by uh, D'Agostino, um, and he found a mean effect of 0.59, which sounds great for reading recovery. Uh, but I wanted to go through why its effect size was so much higher than other balanced literacy programs. Um, and I, I started to read the individual studies and go through them one by one, and I noticed a big problem. Um, so the way we're supposed to calculate an effect size is by comparing the control group and comparing the experiment group. In several of the studies that are included in this meta-analysis, they had a control group and they had an experiment group, but they didn't calculate their effect size by comparing those differences, which creates a much higher effect size than it should be. Um, so it's basically an inappropriate calculation and it inflates the results. So I, I took the studies that I had access to and recalculated it um, using the proper method. And we got an effect size of 0.21, which is barely statistically significant. And then when you think about the fact that they excluded basically any students with dyslexia from their study, uh, then that 0.21, which is like literally um, a hundredth above statistical significance, you realize this is really not good outcomes. Um, yeah. So uh, Fontes and Pinnell also has problems done with their, their research. So uh, if we look at the individual studies, there are several studies done by this um, CRPE group. I'm forgetting the name of the, the group. Maybe you know, it's a research group, uh, but they, they have like uh, a third of all their research done was on Fontes de Pinnell. And you can tell very clearly that um, they're, they have some kind of connection there. So all the studies that are done by this research group show way larger effect sizes than everybody else. So the average for their group is 0.47. The average for all the studies is 0.38. But if we exclude the studies done by this research group, we get an effect size of 0.09, which is below statistical significance, meaning there's no statistical evidence other than from this group that Fontes Pinal's leveled, level leveled literacy instruction works uh, or benefits students in any way uh, in teaching them how to read. Um, and one thing I noticed about these studies is that 
They had tons and tons of metrics that they threw out there, but the metrics were different in every study. And what might've been going on, this is kind of a little trick that sometimes researchers do where they measure like 50 things and then they report on the highest outcomes and they exclude all the outcomes that weren't statistically significant. In fact, the authors actually wrote down in the paper, oh, we excluded this because it wasn't statistically significant. However, you're not supposed to exclude something because it's not statistically significant from your reporting because it inflates your results because it makes it appear everything that, that you know, showed you did a bad job as suddenly is just gone from the data. Um, yeah. So before I move on any further, that's uh, the sort of the summary of the meta-analysis as it stands in my meta-analysis of the topic. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, uh, Dr. Garforth. Well, I think one thing that is really important to point out is the amount of money that schools across, I mean, even globally, really, are spending on these programs every year. The amount of training required for one teacher or um, learning resource teacher to get reading recovery is hundreds of hours. And then you're paying individually for each student to do that program. And if we're saying that program's not gonna work for the lowest students who really need the support, what are we doing? Why are we spending all this money over and over again when there are programs that aren't the same per student cost that would benefit? and buying those resources, like the resources needed for the LLI stuff are very expensive. And it's about where should we be putting that money and that effort? So we're gonna get those low students and help the higher ones at the same time. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, okay, so I wanted to talk about real quick, um, the phonics and dyslexia issue. Although we see the lower results um, for dyslexic students, this is seen across the board for all research on dyslexic students. And it's an unfortunate thing. Interestingly, the, the, the studies that show the highest benefit for dyslexic students are actually morphology studies, but there's only like three of them. And I'm really uncomfortable being basing recommendations off of three, three studies. I think when we're looking at saying, what is the science of reading? We have to have a high barrier and it can't be, there were three studies done that showed a really sort of outlier data. Um, now that's not to say that morphology isn't positive for students. I think it is. I just don't think there's enough research yet to say that that's the, the golden ticket for um, dyslexic inst instruction. But one of the really fascinating um, parts about uh, the science behind dyslexic students is the, the, the neuroscience side, because we've done research where we used to take like brain scans of students who have dyslexia versus not have dyslexia. And they, they show that the students who have dyslexia, their brains look physically different in these brain scans. But the really, really cool part is that when we have large amounts of phonics instructions for those students and they rescan the, scan their brains afterwards, they can no longer tell the difference between a dyslexic brain and a non-dyslexic brain. I think, I think that's fascinating. And I think that, that shows proof that on a, on a structural level, that proper instruction makes changes that benefits um, students. Well, it is rocket science. Because I saw that our, earlier today. 
we are praying, or performing brain surgery without a knife when we're doing proper instruction. We're making connections between areas of our brain that weren't originally designed to be connected and we're repurposing other areas and making it so they can be trained to recognize letters as symbols and realize that directionality counts for them. And then learning how to take oral language and gather it from the print, right? So all right. I I I I don't know. This is one of the things that I think is the coolest part from a nerd yeah. nerd perspective. Just seeing the change of the brain, the knowing that you can. I, I think it's it talks to about neuroplasticity in the sense that uh, it's really important not to, to sort of see the students as students who can read and can't read. And it's really important to realize that just that our, our emergent readers are all going to need very similar instruction, but the students who have dyslexia are probably going to need more of that emergent reader style instruction than the students who um, have more typical brains or neurotypical brains. And so, that's what the recommendations are addressing, Yeah. right? We're seeing it explicitly state, remove the cueing methods that you have shown in these results are not helping students. Yeah, there's, there's actually very little research that I'm aware of that I could find. And I've, I've looked at this topic several times on specifically three cueing itself, but the programs that employ three cueing in every meta-analysis, other than that D'Augustino meta-analysis I showed you, um, show very low results for those balanced literacy programs. So I would say that the we have very solid indirect evidence that three queuing doesn't work um, from the scientific perspective. And then from a, like just a mechanistic perspective, it doesn't make sense. Like what kid needs to be told, look at the picture. I've never met a kid who didn't always look at the picture. We don't need to teach kids, look at the picture and guess the word. It's, Teach the kids how to read the word. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, so phonics and ELL students. This is, I think, one of the more glossed over areas of phonics uh, um, evidence. But uh, we consistently show, find in studies that phonics is in particularly really valuable for um, students learning English as a second language or as another language. Um, there's one math analysis here showing an effect as a 0.22, uh, or sorry, 2.2, which is incredibly high for phonics. Um, I haven't done the full calculations yet for my own analysis yet of the phonics programs I've been going through, but I am seeing the uh, ESL um, studies within them. And the ESL studies always show higher results. And in fact, one of the criticisms I saw someone le levy against using Jolly Phonics is some of their studies were um, ESL studies. But I think that just highlights the fact that um, it's really important when we're teaching students who are you know, immigrants to Canada who are coming from other places. Yeah, that we want to include phonics in the instruction. And I really, this I think comes back to the fact that an ESL student is likely an emergent reader. When you first start to learn how to read, if you whether it's because you have dyslexia and you've missed the instruction you need to catch up to other, the rest of your class, whether it's you're from another country and you're learning English for the first time, or whether it's you're in kindergarten and you're learning how to read for the first time, you have to have that basic skills that go behind our English language to be able to become a successful reader at least uh, to learn efficiently how to become a successful reader. And two of those really base important skills are phonemic awareness and um, phonological knowledge. And um, doing, sorry, with that explicit oh. teaching, the one yes. thing that I don't always see talked about is that when you have an individual that has English as an additional language, they don't necessarily have the same 
phonemic awareness in English because the languages they're the languages they're more comfortable speaking may not have the same number of phonemes or um, ways to represent them. So mm -hmm. that explicit phonics and phonemic awareness instruction helps train their brain to understand the new things they need to pay attention to. And especially in the younger years, this is when their brain is still plastic enough to make those changes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And I didn't really talk a lot about phonemic awareness today um, because not all structured literacy programs or programs advertising themselves as structured literacy include phonemic awareness, mm -hmm. but the, the national reading panel meta-analysis actually showed higher results for phonemic awareness instruction than they did for phonics instruction. And uh, so is John Hattie's meta-analysis of the topic. So like there's, there's a lot of evidence that we need to teach phonemic awareness, especially in those um, kindergarten and uh, pre-kindergarten years. Although I think the one thing that, you know, sometimes can get missed in this when we start talking about grade levels is that where the student is at as an individual matters because a student who is reading at a grade one level needs the same instruction that an average grade one student is going to need, regardless of the age of yeah. the student. Um, so I, as obviously we're talking about the Ontario Rights Union Commission, um, uh, right to read inquiry today. So they have five main recommendations from their, their program or their, their thing. And that's that um, curriculum instruction should respect, uh, reflect the scientific research, uh, that we should be using early screening, that reading interventions are early and evidence-based, that we provide accommodations and modifications to curriculum expectations to help students learn to read, and we use professional assessments. Um, I think the, the professional assessments is an important one. Actually, that's one I really want to highlight and the early screening in that, uh, sometimes I've heard, you know, comments like, well, the student, they know their alphabet. They, they, they know their decoding. They know they're sounding. It's the comprehension that they stand, they are struggling with. As a teacher, when you hear something said to you like that, you have to take the time to unpack it and be sure because, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on social media engaging with teachers who are trying to improve their science-based uh, practice of reading. And I often hear teachers being like, well, they, they can decode, but they don't know their comprehension yet. And I always ask the same question. How do you know that? Are you sure? Do they know their 44 sounds? Um, and I always go back to that because if there's a couple of sounds they've missed uh, or they don't have their phonemic awareness or uh, they don't know their vowel blends, uh, we have to go back and we have to make sure that students know that. Um, before we start worrying about other aspects of instruction, because it's so core and basic to being able to decode and be able to read unfamiliar words. There's tens of thousands of words in the English language. We can't just teach them all to students. That's why like meta-analyses of vocabulary instruction specifically show really low results because you can't teach 20,000 words to a student. Uh, you can't. So you have to teach them the skills so they can decode those words and learn them for themselves. Definitely. And the other thing to remember is just because they can decode a word doesn't mean they are a fluent reader or that they have orthographically mapped the word and have it in their site vocabulary. So can they can have that instantaneous recognition and that's going to impact their ability to do things. Automaticity and fluency are key when it comes to this. Yeah, I think. It's funny, I, I, I talked to Dr. Timothy Shanahan on it, and he was one of the lead researchers on the National Reading Panel on this meta-analysis. And he, one of the things he talks about is that fluency has sort of a bad rap. 
because fluency is less important than um, decoding skills. And I think some of the practices around fluency instruction, they seem a little wonky, a little pseudoscience-y. For example, the timed practice gets a lot of flack. Uh, there's research showing it works, but I mean, nobody really wants to time kids reading. Let's be honest. I don't. Um, but I think that fluency instruction piece is sort of that middle piece before you get to comprehension. Once we have students who are starting to get that automaticity with decoding, but they're still decoding, they're still sounding out words, we might need to have some fluency practice in there in between. And that's where those screening measures are extremely useful. Like when we're looking at tasks like rapid automatized naming to see how quickly it is that they can look at a letter and tell you what it is. Um, and, you know, screening for these different things can take a very brief amount of time, but inform your instruction incredibly and ensure that you're providing the appropriate intervention. We can do um, class-wide screening in the primary grades and address those phonological awareness issues and phonics issues early on, catching them before they fall, saving them from so much pain and trouble, making sure they get the skills that they need to be successful readers and keep up with their peers. That is essential. And then when you get those older students, you know, in the intermediate grades, don't assume anything like you've mentioned. I know several students that I've worked with, I've asked them to simply sit down, print their name and the alphabet. And I have found that shocking how long it can take a student to do that and how difficult a task it can be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a, a screener I made just for my own purposes, just for being free. Uh, it's, it's up on my website if anyone's interested in using it, but it's, it's, it's for that very reason of just identifying those really specific things from a teacher point of view that you need to look at. Do they know their alphabet? Like that's the very first thing on there. Like, do they know the alphabet? Then do they know their consonant sounds? Cause the consonant, some of the consonant sounds are really easy. Um, then do they know their vowel blends? And then do they know their more irregular digraphs? Um, and honestly, to me, that's more valuable instruction than what level reading uh, a student is at. And that's what you see on like, um, I think one of the big criticism of Fonda's Pinal is not just their instruction. It's just these leveled reading um, uh, assessments that, that don't tell us anything about the specific skills we need to be teaching those students, but rather just base it off like the number of syllables they can read of a word. Um, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense because realistically, we want to see students know very specific things at very specific grades. And we can know this from meta-analysis. Like we know from meta-analysis, realistically, pre-K, kindergarten, we really want students to be learning phonemic awareness. And we really want them to start to learn those basic sounds like consonants. And we want them to learn their alphabet. Whereas like grade one and two, we want them to start to learn those more like specific sounds like their, their vowel blends, like what does EO sound like? Um, what does, uh, you know, any vowel blank letter E sound like? We need them to learn that. Um, and having a level of literacy and assessment doesn't give us any of that information. So it's really not useful, especially in the primary grades. Well, and the importance of screening yeah. is to get data on your students and be able to use it. With yeah. those screening measures that you were just speaking about, it's so abstract and not able to put into use in their instruction. So, so they, they can read a, a J level book. What does that mean? 
right? There, there's no. Um, it means they can read an easy book, I guess. Well, yeah, but you're you're not looking at the code knowledge that they have because it's not consistent. It's not in level one you have these letters at the code because they yeah. are not a decodable text series. Yeah, I mean, realistically, it, it gives us information if we're going to use the font of the Spinal series, what books to give them. And then, but then why would we use the Fontes Penal series given that the meta-analysis evidence shows their program doesn't really work? Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't think it's valuable. No, I think it, I do. This might be a con, uh, uh, um, unpopular opinion on a, a science uh, reading show. I don't think it's a problem in the later grades once they've learned their decoding uh, to have some level of like what grade reading level do we, we think they're roughly at. I, I think that's fine. But I, it, and especially in those early grades or for an intervention student where they're coming to the resource teacher or the special education teacher or their tutor because they're below in reading where they need to be. Well, we need to know why they're below in reading. It does, it's not helpful to know what grade they're reading at. No, but and when we're talking about those grades in the higher level, it's more having to do with comprehension. Yeah. No, uh, okay. The comprehension side instead of the word recognition side. Okay, um, so my summary of this presentation, 30 years of scientific research has consistently showed us the same thing. Uh, readers need systematic, explicit phonics instruction, regardless of their grade, um, as long as they're in that emergent level. Meta-analysis, uh, neurological studies, and linguistic evidence all shows the same thing, that balanced literacy and 3Qing are an inefficient way to teach students how to read. That doesn't mean that nobody's ever learned to read uh, through balanced literacy. Obviously, people have. Um, obviously, I grew up through a balanced literacy age, and I, I know how to read. But it, the problem is that it misses students. That it misses students who are not going to have that sort of, who are going to struggle more with literacy instruction. And those students need that more explicit. But it, it shouldn't be the takeaway that we give the explicit instruction to the struggling students and not to every student, because the research also shows that Structured literacy helps all students uh, across the board. So there's really no point in giving balanced literacy instruction. The Ontario Human Rights Council has ruled that reading is a right, that balanced literacy is not supported by science, and that emergent reading instructions should include the systematic explicit instruction of phonics. And if I've said that phrase uh, several times throughout this presentation, it's because I really want it to be the main takeaway of anyone watching, that you're in the primary grades or for intervention students, they need systematic, explicit instruction of phonics. Uh, yeah. So that's my presentation today. Any questions for me, Dr. Oh, Garfield? I was going to highlight that when we're doing this phonics instruction, it's important to include the written aspect of it. I, I'm pretty sure your meta-analysis didn't go into this component. But no, we, we need to make sure that the phonics instruction for reading is incorporating how they encode the words when they're spelling because they're yeah. very related skills and they help cement things into place. Yeah, I think uh, there is a lack of research in this specific area. So it leads to debate and wherever we have a lack of research, we get more debate. Yeah. Um, so I see some people being like, we shouldn't teach spelling because it's not covered in like the NRP meta-analysis. Um, I, I would not go that far. So like instruction on spelling in meta-analysis has also been shown to be very high yield. Um, and I think 
we don't, I don't, I haven't seen a ton of research on phonics-based spelling studying, but at the same time, we can use sort of mechanistic logic to be like, well, if phonics works, why not apply it to spelling? Why not base, you know, rather than giving a leveled literacy instruction list of spelling words in a week, why not give students a list of spelling words that are based off of specific phonemes and word families? That um, they're working then, on at the same time in their reading exactly. instruction. Exactly. So that it's just reinforcement, right? Yeah. So to me, I like in a good program, this should just be two sides of the same point. Like it doesn't have to be this very separate thing. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I think this is a a great uh, tool or uh, talk to reference in the future. And we will have it available as a replay on the Right to Read Initiative website and YouTube channel. Will you be sharing it on the Pedagogy Not Grana channel as well? I will. And actually, I was going to say, um, but I've actually put a copy of this presentation, like without me speaking, uh, up on the, the Pedagogy Facebook page. Um, so if anyone wants a copy of this presentation, it's, it's free to share. Um, I put it up actually a couple of days ago in advance um, because uh, I had in mind that if you are a teacher and you want to convince an administrator that this is the science of reading and that this is the way we need to move forward, that this I wanted to give a summary of the research so that people could make that presentation for themselves. So uh, you could it, this is an open access document I have here that I'm reading from, um, and a couple hundred people have already uh, downloaded it. Although it's it's slightly driving me crazy because I had to click. Uh, accept on every person who who tries to download it so i'm going a little crazy from all the dings on my phone but uh yeah it's it's there so if anyone wants it you can uh check the pedagogy non grata facebook page thank you very much yeah.